Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, about 10% of all eligible Hamiltonians have received a COVID-19 vaccine dose to date. The city says it's working on making it even easier to get the vaccine. Paul Johnson, the Director of Emergency Operations in Hamilton, joins us to explain. What does the future of small business look like here in Hamilton? Keenan Loomis spoke about that with Premier Doug Ford yesterday, and he joins us to talk about it. And Canada is hitting Chinese officials with sanctions over gross human rights violations. Prime Minister Trudeau says there is no link between the new sanctions and the ongoing trials of the two Michaels. But is it true? We'll find out. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. When are we going to get vaccinated? When is it going to be my turn? Why the hold up? Why does it take so long to get through on the phones? So many different questions about this. Uh, the provincial and local governments, of course, are trying to coordinate this stuff. And uh, there's still some controversy, notwithstanding all the information that we, we have received over the last couple of weeks about the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, some people are still holding off on that, thinking, well, I'm not so sure, even though the scientific evidence seems to point that there's nothing going on here. So to that point, Ontario Health Minister says she is willing to lead by example and show people that the Oxford Zeneca COVID-19 vaccine is safe for people. Uh, Minister Christine Elliott says she plans to get the vaccine on camera to prove to people that the vaccine is safe. It's unfortunate there still is a lot of vaccine hesitancy around AstraZeneca. It is safe, it works, it prevents hospitalizations, and it saves people's lives. And so, uh, yes, I actually am planning to have the, uh, to receive the AstraZeneca vaccine, and I will do it in front of a camera if I can convince one other person to receive the AstraZeneca vaccine, and that helps protect them and their health and safety and that of their families. I'm more than happy to do that. I volunteer to do that if I get the shot sooner. Anyway, a lot of us are concerned about exactly how this is going to roll out. So let's talk about what's happening locally uh, and, and the implications for that. And to that end, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Paul Johnson, who is the director of the Emergency Center and the services for COVID-19. Uh, Paul, thanks so much for taking time out of a busy Well, every day is a busy day for you, but I appreciate you joining us today. My pleasure, Bill. Great to be here. Let's talk a little bit about this, because I know there's been some, some coordination between the city and Dr. Richardson and yourself. Uh, the province, by the way, we should say, is uh, going to have a presser uh, just around noontime today. I think it's about 1230. that's going to outline uh, what they consider to be next steps on this. I, I guess the obvious question is, it, how's it going locally? How, how do you see it as, as the last couple of days have unfolded? Well, the good news is, Bill, we continue to get uh, vaccine uh, administered to uh, thousands of people. And so I know that uh, there's been some frustration, you know, appointments are all booked up, uh, but some of that's a reality of supply. We will open up more spaces uh, in the next couple of weeks. So uh, patience is the key here. But the good news is we're, we're getting vaccine into people's arms. Uh, you know, as uh, the stories have come out in the last couple of days, we're at about 10% of the adult population of the city of Hamilton, uh, nearly 70,000 uh, doses of vaccine provided. And in many cases for the most vulnerable, as you know, uh, they've received their full second doses, those in long-term care and retirement homes. So, you know, it's it's things like that that uh, that we're really pleased with because that's uh, was was mission number one to protect those who are most vulnerable. And now we just continue to to roll it out. We hope for more supply soon so that we can do more and more uh, shots. But yesterday was a big change too. Opened another large-scale vaccination clinic at the First Ontario Centre. Uh, went uh, very well. People uh, leaving said. You know, it's it's all good. There's uh, uh, it works well. It's smooth, and any little hiccups, some of them are around parking. Uh, we'll iron those out, and as we continue to build more vaccine, and we're really pleased that we're going to be opening up Rosedale Arena uh, in early April, and again, that's going to deliver, uh, you know, a couple of thousand doses a day at full output. So 
we have the ability. Uh, I was asked last week, you know, where do we stand in terms of if vaccine was to start to flow in large numbers tomorrow, where are we? And the answer is we are ready. And that's, uh, that's what we're waiting for now, Bill, is that supply. And also going to start moving, as the province has, has indicated, in terms of that second phase of vaccine uh, to start to vaccinate more populations. Uh, age will be a, a big factor in this as we start to move down the age ranges as we are now. Uh, and then uh, there will be other priority populations that will come to uh, together as well. Well, I want to ask you specifically about, about the, the seniors population. Uh, one of your first priorities, of course, as you mentioned, was to address some of the vulnerable folks in long-term care facilities. The provincial numbers I saw on this indicated that it was only slightly over 70% of eligible people actually took the vaccine. That's not enough uh, to, to attain the, 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 the herd immunity that we had talked about. Are, do you, have you seen the numbers in Hamilton? Is it similar to that? So it breaks down, you know, there's a lot of breakdowns. We, you know, in sure. long-term care, the uptake was very, very high, uh, 90%, uh, high 90s. So in long-term care, uh, a little less in retirement home is still very high. As we start to move into the populations that book themselves, that come in and get the vaccine, uh, a little bit of work to do, but certainly in the 85-plus uh, crowd in, in Hamilton, very pleased with the, the rates that we have and already – um, over 50% in terms of, of some of the 80-plus uh, crowd and now moving into the 75 crowd. So um, I think that we'll get there. Uh, early numbers are always just that, the early numbers, remembering that there are challenges sometimes with booking and the number of appointments. It's going to take a few weeks for us to get to some of these populations. It doesn't happen overnight or only in a few days. Uh, so I think we're off to a good start, and we have some specific strategies in Hamilton to deal with uh, ways of encouraging folks to continue to come out and get the vaccine. And, and our hope is that as more and more people uh, just understand that it is uh, very easy to get, it's a very effective vaccine, uh, there's nothing to be afraid of in terms of coming out and getting it, uh, that we'll continue to see those numbers grow. But where we needed it most, long-term care to stop death, uh, because of the high rates of death in long-term care facilities, that rate of coverage is extremely high, and that's good news for our long-term care facilities. No, it is, and I know the the numbers with the, the plus 85 are a little concerning, but that's just around the same time that there was some trepidation about the, the vaccine itself, and, and now that those concerns have been allayed, I'm hoping that those people uh, can get back into the queue, and, and th there's always an opportunity for them, isn't there? I mean, if they said no I, I, last week or two weeks ago, they can still get the vaccine at some point, uh, oh, yeah. which is, Once you're which is eligible, good news. Bill, it's a really important point to raise. Once you're eligible, you're eligible, and so, uh, you know, you don't have to be, once we moved from 85 to 80 or 80 to 75, it doesn't mean that now you're out and you have to wait till another time. Uh, once you're eligible, uh, if you haven't got it already, um, you know, make sure that uh, you sign up and, and you'll remain eligible as we move through this. Yeah, the, the, the 75s or the 70s or the 60s, whenever you're going to get to, that's the minimum age. Everybody above that is still eligible if you haven't had it yet. Uh, the biggest concern I'm hearing from, from our listeners, Paul, and I'm sure this is uh, what you guys are getting an earful too, is uh, is the wait on the phones. Uh, the fact that you opened up the clinic at First Ontario Centre, and of course it's already booked for the week. It's, it's kind of like concert tickets going on sale and they're sold out in two minutes. It's awfully frustrating for people. Is it, is it just the amount of product that you have available that limits that number? It's that, and the, the other side is that we're still working with how many appointments we can have in those in, in further weeks. Uh, so we had 3,000 appointments available for this week, and, and of course they go in, in a day. And uh, we have to make sure that as we're booking dates into the future that we will have the supply. And so it's, it's 
not quite as easy as you think in terms of the math around this and, and what we don't want and what we want to avoid. And so we're a little cautious and we will get some more dates up this week and people will be able to book out for the next three weeks. So uh, it's coming as soon as we can get it. But uh, the challenge is we would never want to have bookings that we would then need to call somebody and say, oh, sorry, we don't have the vaccine. We're going to have to cancel your appointment. So once you get an appointment, you can be assured that the vaccine is going to be there barring some um, something that we can't control. So it's 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 a challenge. And I know that uh, that this week we anticipated taking a few more days for people to book up those 3000 appointments. Um, it happened very quickly and we're still working with the province to get those bookings up. Not a case that we don't have any more vaccine coming in the future. We do. We'll get those dates up, uh, go back online onto the portal and, and book in. And what we have been doing is we've been working through our hotline to book people into some of our pop-up and mobile clinics. So I know some people are going to some of those coming later in the week and into the weekend. So you can call the hotline, uh, see if there's other bookings available which aren't on the provincial site. And then we will get more booking dates on the provincial site as soon as is, uh, as is possible. Let me ask you, uh, maybe some clarification about the pop-up sites. I think it's a great idea. I know uh, they've been off to different areas. You still have to go through and, and book an appointment, though. You can't just show up at one of those sites, can you? No, you can't uh, just show up. So there is no uh, vaccine site, no vaccine approach where where uh, the, the public can just walk up and line up and get a vaccine. Uh, so anything that we're doing is a, is a booking process, and so sometimes that happens through uh, our call center, and we are also going to stand up a, a second uh, online booking tool just for those sites. Uh, so our website will be updated in the next uh, little bit too, so that people can have choice. They can say, "Look, if I'd like to go to more of a locally based one, they're not as they're not as often, so they will come and they will go. But uh, if you're willing to wait uh, a week or so and and get in at one that's more locally based, you'll be able to do that, or you can go to one of the large scale sites that operates uh, seven days a week. So Choice is coming, uh, ease of booking continues to improve, and, and you know, yes, it's frustrating in these early stages, but, uh, you know, I, I just look at the numbers, Bill, and again, thousands and thousands of people are getting them. It's not a case where there's tons of vaccines sitting there because our logistics isn't in place. It's really just a question of getting those opportunities out for folks so they can match up with the vaccine that we're going to be receiving in the next few weeks. One of the ways, maybe the best way to alleviate some of the pressure on you and the call center and, and, and what's going on here at the municipal level, Paul, uh, is more distribution sites. Uh, and I know there's a pilot project going on in some parts of the province, including the Toronto area, uh, where uh, pharmacies are, are doing this, and family doctors to a certain extent, but there's only a handful of family docs that are even doing this right now, which I assume also has something to do with the supply. Uh, have there been any discussions between uh, the city and the province to maybe include at least the pharmacies in this enterprise? I mean, that, that seems to be uh, the thing that, that's making the Toronto thing go as smoothly as it has right now because there are m many more sites because the pharmacies are on board. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, I know the province is going to give us an update uh, this afternoon at 1230. Uh, is there any anticipation that they might expand that program into this area? Oh, I know they will eventually expand it into this area. The goal is that pharmacies across this province will be uh, will be delivering vaccines. Some of it is a supply issue. Uh, uh, you know, there's only so much to go around, and anything you take away from from another avenue is is lowers that capacity. So even in Toronto, it's a you know it's a smaller part of their overall strategy. Most of their work is happening through clinics like our like ourselves. 
but yes, uh, we do uh, talk with both the province. Uh, Dr. Richardson's team has some is having conversations with pharmacies, with family physicians. We have a pilot going on, as you know, uh, as you just mentioned, around uh, family physicians administering the AstraZeneca to those who are 60 to 65, 60 to 64. So it's uh, there's a number of things in pilot phase now, Bill, and then once supply is there, uh, there are going to be multiple channels for people to to access it. And I think you're quite right. In certain parts of our community, I, it'll be a, a take the burden off a little bit to have some of these other entities uh, help us out. And ultimately, that's where we need to go. We have a really good vaccine distribution system. Uh, we do it every year for flu vaccine, and, and, and that's done through pharmacies and other outlets and family physicians. So, uh, you know, at some point, I would see this tipping into that. But for the next little while, the vast majority of uh, vaccinations will happen through what we're calling these mass vaccination sites, the pop-up, the mobile clinics. Uh, those are the ways that uh, many people are going to get their vaccine in the short term. There were some concerns that I heard, again, and this goes back to the first couple of days of the uh, the vaccine rollout here, Paul, uh, where people were given a second date to come back for their second shot, and then they were contacted later on and said, well, well wait, we're going to have to revise that. Now I'm hearing that you're doing that again and, and actually giving them an opportunity and, and saying, look, this is when you should come back to get the second shot. Is it because there's more product that's available and, and the, uh, the anticipation that it's going to be on a consistent basis now that you can be more comfortable saying this is when you get the second shot, show up then? Uh, yeah, because we're at a 16-week interval, there's there's great confidence that um, that, that the supply will be there. Uh, you know, so if people are getting their vaccine in the month of March, uh, you know, you're talking about coming in July for your second dose, and we don't expect any supply issues, uh, challenges by then. So yes, there was a, a cohort of people that were getting it within a, a several week, uh, shorter week span, uh, who had to be called back, uh, pushed out to 16 weeks. Again, understand why we're doing it. There's such good efficacy and such good uh, coverage by this vaccine with a single dose that uh, this allows more people to get a single dose, uh, which helps protect our community and, and get us out of this, this outbreak scenarios and all the other uh, dangerous things that are going on with this virus. And then we'll get that second uh, dose uh, in, an, in an acceptable time frame based on the science. So, yeah, people are getting their second dose uh, dates now uh, when they when they come in most cases to the to the clinics. And if uh, they need to rebook it. To, if they don't get it for some reason, they can do that through the hotline. So uh, everybody's getting it booked in now. Uh, we're going to get there in terms of getting people both of these doses. And yes, we don't have any concern about supply moving forward for that second dose. I know when you met with council the other day uh, as public health, uh, there were some concerns by some of the councillors about the mobile clinics. Can we get more of them and, and have them pop in for more often? There's got to be a, a, a logistics issue there. There are you know, vehicles, staffing, and things of this nature. Uh, I, I would think that that's wonderful if you could do that, but the better solution seems to be, as you said, to bring the pharmacies and the family docs into the process. Yeah, we'll be doing that. But the other piece is we'll be more consistent in alerting people to when they're going to see those uh, pop-up or mobile sites in their community. Right now, it's a question of are they ever coming back because we just don't have our schedule set large, uh, far enough in advance. So there's a, there's a great hybrid that we're going to do. We are tapped out in terms of resources. Adding many, many more uh, pop-ups or mobile clinics that would operate simultaneously is just not an option for us. Uh, there are, are uh, hundreds and in total thousands of people working on the vaccine program between our, our healthcare partners in the city of Hamilton, uh, both public health and the rest of the city. So we, we, we've sort of hit a max, um, and that's where we'll utilize these other partnerships for sure, pharmacies, uh, family physicians, those types of things. 
but also keep moving these mobile and pop-up sites around, but try and be more consistent in our communication with the community so that they do know, hey, if I want to wait a couple of weeks, there's going to be a local clinic that's going to be here. Uh, if I don't want to wait, then I can book in with one of these large sites that is operating each day. When you get a date, you know, April 5th, what is it? okay, you know, Mr. Johnson, you, you, can you go to wherever you want or are you assigned a location, First Ontario Centre, St. Joe's on the Mountain, whatever the case might be? So you pick your location, uh, or if you do it through the hotline, they'll offer you, you still choose your location. You must go to that location. Okay. So our vaccine is allocated based on the bookings that we have for those sites. So if we're doing a, a location, for instance, at the uh, at the Rotary Centre, our recreation facility in Ancaster, uh, we will know who's been booked in there and the number of vials of vaccine that are provided to the public health team that's going out there is set based on that. So you can't just say, well, I have a, I have an appointment on this day. I'll just go wherever I want. Please go to the, the site that you've selected. Uh, but you do get that choice. And, and uh, that way people can go where it's uh, more comfortable, closer to where they work, or closer to home, whatever the case may be. And uh, so arrive there. Try and arrive fairly close to your appointment time is the message we're giving as well. Otherwise, there's lineups uh, and things which uh, would just slow everybody down. And uh, generally speaking, between 30 and 45 minutes seems to be the average time it will take for people to go through the whole process, recognizing that there is a period of about 15 to 20 minutes at the end where we monitor, make sure everybody is uh, healthy and safe uh, before they're, they're finally checked out of the vaccine clinic. So it is fairly straightforward once you get there, but please do go to the site that you booked. Uh, in the final 10 seconds, I'm just going to remind, because I know you wanted to do this anyway, uh, even if you get the vaccine, I still maintain the COVID protocols, the, the social distancing, the masking and things of this nature. Uh, the variant numbers are still very troubling, and, and that, that ugly monster has not gone away yet. So uh, keep the mask going and, and everything else. That's what we need to do here. Oh, absolutely. Feel good about getting a vaccine and what that's doing for yourself, but follow all of those public health measures. Uh, until we're instructed to do otherwise, uh, either locally or provincially or nationally. Uh, as we say, the update from the province comes uh, around noontime today. Hopefully there's some good news for this area as well. Paul, as always, thanks so much for this. I uh, really appreciate the time today. Thanks, Bill. Paul Johnson, Director of Emergency Centre for the City of Hamilton and the COVID vaccine process. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about economic recovery. I mean, you know, we're hopeful that the vaccination program is going to be effective, that we're going to see this herd immunity and some way that we're going to get back to some sense of normal. But it's not like you can just flick a switch and say, okay, economy, back to, to where you were before, flourishing. It's not going to happen that easily. Uh, a couple of weeks ago in the program, we talked with Pedro Tunis, who was the chief economist of the Conference Board of Canada, as he told us that uh, once this crisis is over, there will be long-lasting economic impacts. Even though we are recovering, the level of economic activity will remain weaker than what we would have seen without COVID-19. There's a lot of restructuring that is going to happen in the economy. There is going to be massive changes in terms of demand for office space, in terms of downtown businesses. Uh, and all of these things are going to be costly and keep the economy from being where it might have been had we not had COVID-19. So what's the government's plan to try to help small business get back on their feet and hopefully to flourish again? Well, there have been some discussions ongoing. And uh, recently, uh, the president and CEO of the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce, Keenan Loomis, uh, had a call with Premier Doug Ford uh, to discuss the future of small business in this area. He uh, joins us on the program to discuss this. Keenan, welcome back to the program. Good to hear from you again. Good morning, Bill. Great to be on the program again. Let's talk to us a little bit about uh, your conversation with the Premier. 
Yeah, well, so uh, this week is uh, the Ontario Chamber of Commerce's uh, Queen's Park Advocacy Week. happens every year. Usually we descend upon uh, the legislature in uh, early March. Um, it was one of the last things that uh, I remember doing with my colleagues in person um, before the, the lockdown last year. And uh, this year, obviously, is happening virtually. And uh, we talked to the Premier yesterday with uh, uh, the Treasury Ministry, um, uh, Peter Bethlenfalvy, and, uh, you know, obviously previewing uh, the budget. That's a, a big thing happening uh, this week out of Queen's Park. But uh, a lot of the emphasis with the Premier uh, yesterday was on vaccines. Uh, a lot of questions related to that. What can we expect, uh, you know, vaccines to generally be distributed uh, throughout the, uh, the population so that we can uh, get back to normal? And uh, obviously, they're, they're very, very focused on that. And I would say that, uh, you know, a good 90 percent of their, uh, their energy is dedicated to, uh, to the vaccine rollout. So I'm hopeful that, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of uh, predictions that by the end of June, uh, most people should have their vaccine. Um, I hope and expect that, uh, just like all governments, they're uh, under-promising in the hope that they will over-deliver. I, and I'll talk about the vaccine program too, and especially the support council that uh, that you wanted to talk about, and we'll get to that in a second. But mm-hmm. obviously, we want to make sure that the economy is going to get back on track. Uh, the encouraging thing is that uh, there seem to be some positive signs already, uh, notwithstanding the fact that we seem to be in a third wave right now, that there are some economic recovery uh, 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 options that seem to be happening right now. Uh, and and that's that's good to know. Uh, but did you get any sense, Keena, about the government understand the severity of this as you talked to the, the Premier and, and, well, the acting finance minister, Mr. Beth and Falvey, uh, that there's still going to have to be some stimulus, there's still going to have to be some assistance here for small businesses? I mean, the, a lot of the ones I've talked to, and I know you hear from them on a daily basis, uh, are very, very concerned about what's going to happen in the future. Yeah, there was uh, a lot of talk about that. Um, you know, they... Uh, Minister Bethenfall, we didn't want to provide too much information um, in advance of the uh, the budget being released tomorrow. Uh, there was a lot of uh, stay tuned, um, and uh, more information on that uh, is forthcoming um, from all the ministers that uh, we met with yesterday. Um, I know that there is a particular emphasis on on infrastructure spending um, in, in the the need for a stimulus uh, post COVID as well. So you'll. Uh, You'll see some uh, some uh, spending priorities on that, um, you know, and, and one uh, in particular related to uh, Hamilton LRT. Uh, it will be one of the five projects submitted to the to the federal government for um, in, in hopes that the, the federal government can uh, bring some funding to the table and help us get uh, that going. And obviously, that's going to be really important to our local economy, uh, especially in the downtown, which has been hollowed out. Uh, uh, over the last year. Yeah, that's an interesting point because there seemed to be some discrepancy about exactly where the money was going to come from. Uh, but I know the Premier was in town a couple of days ago and uh, and mentioned at that time to Mayor Eisenberger that, uh, yeah, we're not there yet, but we're going to get this thing going. I, I don't know if you can take that as a quote-unquote commitment, uh, but they seemingly have not given up on this yet. Well, they haven't. I mean, obviously, they vacillated on this. It, it was in the budget two years ago. It uh, got canceled a year ago, um, and it now uh, is back on the table. I think that you'll see the, it in the budget again uh, this year. 
So unfortunately, you know, a lot of uh, lost time there. It would be nice if we were actually building uh, the LRT right now while uh, activity downtown is uh, is lower than it was pre-COVID. But, um, you know, we are where we are. Um, a lot of talk is, is, is needed at this point in time with the uh, the federal government um, to uh, to come to the table. And I know that they are very willing to do so. It's just obviously, uh, you know, very complex. Um, and uh, I don't think, unfortunately, we're going to have shovels in the ground, uh, you know, within the next couple of years, uh, even if we do uh, find um, some sort of uh, deal uh, you know, within the next little bit, but uh, it will be important to signaling uh, overall where the uh, you know what the trajectory of downtown and, and Hamilton will be over the next five to ten years as we do look to uh, to dig out from you know uh, the the COVID doldrums. The announcement from the federal government, though, Keenan, uh, from a week and a half or so ago, uh, was a substantial amount of money, but it was to electrify fleets around the country. Uh, they didn't talk much about things like LRT and things of this nature. Are, are you concerned about that, that they may have uh, shifted focus? No, I, no, I'm not. This is just a, a completely different uh, con- completely different animal. Uh, the LRT system versus electrifying you know, the, the, the transit fleets, the bus fleets, uh, essentially, um, that uh, most cities have, uh, you know, across the country. Um, this is just a much bigger, bigger project. But it's it, this Hamilton LRT has now been lumped in with the other four um, GTA uh, LRT and uh, and um, subway projects. So, you know, that's a that's a really good thing. Um, and those are being dealt with uh, on their own, separate from the other uh, priorities that were announced uh, from the federal government. But still, Minister McKenna is playing is the point person for both and i know she's very committed to uh, the hamilton lrt project well it's uh, going to be interesting to see just uh, when they make their move obviously the, the provincial government uh, seems to be consistent about this at least they have been in the last year uh, but uh, the federal government i mean they're talking the talk right now i guess one you want to see the check right now i, I you know don't want to be trite but it's this, this is the show me the money moment isn't it yeah, yeah, it certainly is. And, uh, you know, we'll probably hear this week, uh, that, uh, the, the federal budget it will be expected, uh, by the end of next month. So, you know, there, there's a lot to be done between now and then, but, uh, hopefully you'll see the Hamilton LRT project within the federal budget as well. All right, let's uh, get back to the discussion you had with the Premier. As you mentioned, an awful lot of the time was taken up with vaccinations. Uh, And that's understandable because I think a lot of the talk about economic recovery and all the things that we want to see happen and get rectified is really dependent upon uh, a successful vaccination program. We've got to make sure that a very, very high percentage of Ontarians roll up their sleeves and and get the vaccine. Uh, And to that end, uh, the Ontario Vaccination Support Council uh, is uh, launching right now. Maybe you could talk to us about that. Yeah, this is an effort uh, launched by the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. Um, you know, as you know, when uh, when the pandemic started, all kinds of businesses stepped up in in various ways uh, to try to help. Um, you know, making PPE, sanitizer, whatever they could. Um, but there are a whole bunch of other businesses that uh, you know weren't able to uh, to provide help at that time. They don't manufacture things or, or what have you. Um, but this is a really good opportunity at this point in time for businesses to step up um, across the province to help our local public health units in the, uh, the distribution of the vaccine. Uh, obviously, you know, you have the frontline healthcare workers that are 
um, are going to be uh, jabbing people in the in the arms with the vaccine. But there's a whole bunch of other stuff that uh, needs to go on to uh, to make that happen. So um, what uh, we are doing is, is joining with the OCC in the creation of an online portal um, to help link the private sector with our, our public health uh, units. Uh, so that uh, the organizations can volunteer time or the resources uh, to support the province's uh, vaccination efforts. Um, and what we need is for businesses to uh, to go to the portal at uh, vaccinesupportcouncil.com um, before uh, the end of the day on Friday and, uh, and, and fill in uh, how they can help. So whether it's uh, offering uh, staff who can volunteer to, uh, to help staff uh, these efforts, um, storage of vaccines is really important, providing uh, PPE as well. And, uh, and uh, there are a lot of businesses as well that have a significant space that uh, they can lend to, uh, to support uh, the efforts as well. And so, for example, we already see uh, AMD, uh, ArcelorMittal de Pasco has stepped up. They're volunteering uh, PPE uh, and uh, other healthcare supplies. Um, their workplace uh, and, and their parking lots as well. And, uh, of course, they're uh, working hard to support the vaccine education efforts too, uh, which is uh, something that um, a lot of businesses are in a good uh, position to be able to do is to encourage their employees uh, to get vaccinated. So uh, already, like I said, DeFasco stepped up. 541 Barton is a, is a restaurant on, on Barton. Uh, they've uh, volunteered their space for a potential clinic as well. Uh, so uh, lots of excess capacity out there within the private sector. Uh, and, uh, you know, if uh, they, can, uh, they can help out with the effort, uh, we can get this done uh, even quicker here in Hamilton. So, again, it's uh, vaccinesupportcouncil.com. Well, and we've seen examples of that already, even in the early days of the vaccination rollout. Uh, I think it was when Pfizer first came out, and one of the concerns there was, of course, about the, the cold temperature that it had to be stored at. And, and a couple of businesses actually stepped up and said, hey, we've got those facilities. Uh, you know, we'll make room for it, uh, which was great. I mean, that, that's changed now. But they don't need it to be as cold as it was. But even refrigeration facilities and things of this nature, uh, I, I guess the message here, the takeaway here, Keenan, is uh, if a, co- a company or a business is interested in doing this, uh, uh, get in touch with these folks and say, look, here's what we got. Can you use it? And the answer is probably going to be yes. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and you know, if it's even if it's just, uh, you know, having a couple of your the people on, on staff uh, volunteer uh, to, to staff up some of these sites so that you can free up the public health professionals to, to do the vaccinations themselves and, and uh, the other health care work, that will be really, really helpful uh, to the overall effort. How coordinated are these things? And I'm trying to think here of Hamilton businesses, and, and I, I, you've got every right to be proud of, of the way that they've always stepped up in, in a time of need for whatever the case might be. Uh, but even for things like United Way campaigns every year, too, there's usually some coordination even within the businesses to try to get people on side and to participate in, in what little way they can or a big way, depending on, on their resources and situations like that. But are local businesses talking to employees about the vaccination program? Are they trying to educate them to make sure? I mean, it's not a mandatory program. We understand that, but to understand the the importance of, of the vaccination and, and what it means to well, possibly even to the to the longevity of their jobs and and the economic viability in the future. Yeah, to the extent that they can, I, I think that they're doing an amazing job. Um, you know, and and I think it, it will be something that will every employee will will need to be vaccinated to be able to return to work, and I think that that's going to be an important aspect 
to this is, uh, you know, as, as we get back to, again, quote unquote, normal, um, where people are coming into the workplace, um, you're going to need to demonstrate that uh, you've been vaccinated to be able to do so. And I think it's going to be really important from a, a social and, and mental health perspective for, uh, for people to, get, to be able to socialize again um, with their coworkers. Coworkers are, are family. Um, and uh, it's been a long time and it's been too long. You know, uh, if I look at our own situation with the, with the chamber, um, I haven't seen too many people in person, but uh, see them in, on Zoom uh, every week. And there's a, a ton of fatigue uh, and people are, are running out of patience. Uh, so it is time to, to get uh, vaccinated and to, to get back to normal. And uh, employers have a, a huge role to play in that. And, you know, the, the amazing thing is the Ontario Vaccine, Vaccine um, uh, Support Council has, is, you know, a, a collection of some really, really uh, impressive uh, employers uh, here in this province. It's, it's all the top employers um, that, uh, you know, em- employ uh, tens of thousands, of, if not millions of people here in uh, in this province. So, you know, you've got them uh, uh, involved with the OCC effort, and of course, they're they're doing everything they can to trickle down um, the information through uh, their their workforce. Um, and so, you know, the private sector is 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 hugely important in this overall effort. Um, and it's nice to to shoulder some of the burden that has been placed on the uh, the public sell- public sector and, and the health professionals that have been operating uh, for the last year just at, at such uh, intense capacity. Um, it, it's time for us to, to step up and, and help them out. Uh, you can visit the portal at, uh, as uh, Kino mentioned, vaccinesupportcouncil.com. Uh, my understanding is they'd like to have this uh, all filled up and uh, have everybody on side by March 26, just a few days from now. So uh, have that discussion and, uh, and get on the web page there and see what we can do. Uh, Keenan, as always, thanks so much for this. I'm sure we'll probably have a discussion again in just a couple of days after the provincial budget comes down tomorrow. But thanks so much for this uh, today and for uh, bringing us up to speed on this project. Thanks, Bill. All the best. You too. Kenan Lewis, President and CEO of the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Canada is uh, joining the United States, the EU, and the United Kingdom in levying sanctions against China over its actions against the Uyghur Muslims. Uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau made the announcement during an appearance in Quebec earlier this week. These measures reflect our grave concern with the gross and systematic human rights abuses taking place in the region. We will continue to work closely with our international partners to pursue accountability and transparency. Now, the opposition parties will say this has been a long time coming and it's about time, but uh, there are certain things within the political realm, I guess, that needed to be considered here, like ramifications, and I suppose there are strength in numbers. Anyway, let's let's discuss this, and uh, so pleased to welcome to the program uh, Sarah Teach, uh, who is an international human rights lawyer and a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Sarah, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could be with us today. Thanks for having me. Is, is this a situation of better late than never, or was there a strategic time that, that Canada had to sign on to something like this? Well, obviously I'm not uh, a government official, and so I don't know the internal workings of the process. Um, I, can, I can make an educated guess that perhaps the reason it took so long is that they wanted to do a, a multilateral initiative as opposed to imposing sanctions independently, and sometimes that sort of collaboration does take time. Uh, on the other side, this is definitely a long time coming, so... There is truth to what both parties will say here, of course. 
I, I think you're bang on with that. I mean, there's strength in numbers. It really isn't there when you're trying to do something this against a power like China. Yes, exactly. It hits much more strongly when you have CCP officials that have their assets frozen across multiple jurisdictions and can't travel to multiple jurisdictions as opposed to just being barred from Canada. Well, and we've seen in the past, unfortunately, uh, when Canada acts in a singular fashion, uh, as they did against uh, Meng and Wanzhou and, and others, that uh, the, the ramifications and the retaliations can be significant. Uh, it's a little more difficult, I would think, for a, a government like the Chinese government to respond to a number of nations like this. Yes, exactly. It is a bit of a different case. When you have the sure. the arrest of, of Meng, it's, you know, that's in response to the extradition request that we got from the United States. So in that case, I actually do think it was it was appropriate to act alone. I don't think there's another. I don't think there's a way that we could have acted in concert in that particular fact situation. Uh, and when it comes to sanctions, you know, we can act alone as well. It's you know pursuant to our legislation, we have the capacity to, and it's it's better than nothing. But certainly, the sort of coordinated effort uh, with multiple jurisdictions coming out all at the same time definitely it does have a lot more power to it. And that, so I think that's a positive. So. In a situation like this, and, and we've seen this happen in other circumstances, uh, NATO nations, G7 nations will band together, as they did against Russia uh, after the Crimea situation a couple of years ago. Uh, so these they sign on, and as we mentioned, it's the United States, the UK, the European Union, all involved in this. So there's a pretty significant amount of, of, of nations behind this uh, in unison against this. How effective can something like this be? highly effective. You know, the effect of Magnitsky sanctions, as we call them, are, mm -hmm. uh, I, I think I alluded to this earlier without really explaining it yet, but uh, basically the uh, named officials, and there are four of them and then one entity in this case uh, so far anyway, uh, the named uh, officials have their assets frozen in the jurisdictions in which they're named, and they are uh, subject to travel bans. So this hits hard when you have a lot of CCP, CCP officials that have uh, assets and bank accounts outside of China and like to travel outside of China. And from a psychological standpoint, I mean, no one likes to be named uh, individually as a gross human rights abuser. There's a, I, I'm, I'm interested in the strategy behind that because we've had some speculative ideas in the last couple of days about how uh, they might you know, try to, to retaliate against some of the human rights things, which, by the way, have been going on for years. I mean, this is really just the latest chapter in it. Uh, exactly. But the, the, the consensus at that time, from the stories I read anyway, Sarah, seemed to be uh, you can't just impose trade sanctions on them because, I mean, they can fight back and, and they've got a pretty strong hammer to throw there, too. But when you personalize it like this and when you, uh, I, I, what they seem to be doing here, is focusing on some of the elites uh, who have power in that country. Uh, if you embarrass them and if you make their life a little bit more difficult, uh, there's probably a pretty good chance that, that you're going to get a reaction from them. Absolutely. I mean, we can do, Canada has the capacity to do both. Uh, we're talking about, you know, targeted sanctions versus countrywide sanctions, of course. And countrywide sanctions are something that we can do pursuant to our Special Economic Measures Act. Um, but those sorts of countrywide sanctions are a lot more controversial, whereas no one really argues with uh, targeted sanctions. It's pretty generally accepted in the international community, at least in the international human rights community, that this is a, a very solid tactic. How important was it for the United States to be involved in this? Because I'm not so sure under the past administration if this would have happened. Uh, yes, I, I think it is important that the U.S. was involved. It definitely is a an interesting and encouraging signal that the Biden administration is looking to work together. I think the Trump administration, what we might have seen is 
similar sanctions, but without talking to any of its allies and just going ahead on its own. And so it's nice that we have this this collaboration for sure. And the U.S. needed to be interested in collaborating for that to happen. Well, yeah, using Trump and allies in the same sentence seems somewhat oxymoronic, I guess, uh, <laughs> looking at some of the way the policies developed there. Uh, but there was an anticipation, wasn't there, Sarah, that with the change of government, uh, you know, in November and the Biden administration being sworn in, uh, that there was going to be a change of attitude when it came to international relations and it wasn't going to be uh, one-offs and America moving on their own, that they were going to look at allies and they were going to talk with partners? Yes, exactly. It's nice to see that that's, that that's followed through. And, and obviously China would be one of the first targets because of the ongoing problems that they've had uh, with the, the, the genocide, basically. Uh, the Canadian government, of course, pa- passed a motion a couple of weeks ago in, the, in our parliament uh, condemning uh, the Chinese for what they termed as genocide. Uh, the Trudeau cabinet uh, did not vote in that. Uh, they abstained from that particular vote. Uh, does that send a message or a mixed message from the Canadian government? You know, I think Trudeau sort of talked himself into a corner with that one, you know, when he, with his statement that sort of at least went viral on my Twitter, uh, basically saying, you know, genocide's a loaded term, et cetera. So shortly after coming out with that statement, I do understand why he and his cabinet abstained, because it would have sent another really mixed signal to vote uh, in favor of the declaration. So he sort of backed himself into a corner with that one. But it's, 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 it's important that it the um, declaration went through and that we've uh, acknowledged that this is a genocide and that's really all that matters here. Uh, I, I don't know. And again, I, as you, I'm not a member of the government either, and I can't get inside the prime minister's head, so we're not sure exactly what his, his rationale for doing that was. But he seems to be supporting this uh, endeavor wholeheartedly too, which, which seems to somewhat contradict what they did before. But I suppose that was yesterday, this is today. Uh, and, and like you say, when you, you know that somebody else has your back here, it makes it a lot easier, I guess, to, to jump on side with something like this. Right. I think what we've seen with our government is really a, a focus and, you know, almost a reliance on multilateralism. And whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I mean, it, at the end of the day, we've declared it a genocide and we've imposed sanctions. So I'm happy with the effect of it all. How impactful is this going to be? I, I don't anticipate, and I'm sure you don't, Sarah, with your experience, uh, anticipate the Chinese government's going to say, OK, you got us. Uh, all right, we'll drop everything. We're going to be nice people now. Uh, it, it's, it's not it's going to happen that quickly but what what's what's the ultimate goal here well the ultimate goal is to get uh the chinese communist party to stop engaging in these gross and systematic human rights violations and genocide and to get them to release the two michaels although of course these sanctions have nothing to do with the two michaels uh, but ultimately to get china to change the sort of um problematic and illegal behavior and no these uh five uh, targeted sanctions will not do that but it's a very important first step and hopefully more sanctions follow and more uh, concerted uh, collaborative action is taken and hopefully we get somewhere with all of this i mean have they been effective in other jurisdictions i mentioned for instance about the sanctions against russia after crimea uh there have been sanctions of course against iraq uh and i know those are economic sanctions uh and iran i'm sorry and uh, and they seem to have, have had a, a, an impact on what's going on within those countries is 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 the unstated goal but uh, to, to, to cause uh, angst within the country and the government gets that sort of heat too, not just from the international scene, but from the, the nationals and the, and the locals and the voters in those countries? Yes, exactly. You've hit the nail on the head. And in terms of whether or not it works, I think we have to remember that the Magnitsky Act, which allows for these sorts of targeted sanctions, is pretty new. Uh, you know, it's only a, a few years old. So it's hard to evaluate the effectiveness yet. But so far, I mean, the it seems to be working. 
And uh, we've seen sanctions in general work, uh, especially when they're in cl um, in collaboration with other efforts as well. But but again, we go back to this idea about the strength in numbers because I know that uh, you know when some of these stories started to surface about what was going on with the Uyghurs, especially. Uh, former Attorney General Erwin Kotler, uh, of course, who's been a very strong advocate for human rights on a worldwide basis, uh, was asking for the act to be imposed at that time, and the government seemed reticent to do that. Uh, I, I, it, it, it just seems as if, okay, now they feel emboldened uh, to be able to do this because they know that the others are going to be on side with this. Uh, and the role that the EU is going to play in this, I mentioned the United States earlier, but the EU uh, and the UK, for that matter, too, uh, really puts some muscle behind this, doesn't it? Yes, uh, Absolutely. I mean, you know, Canada, so what? Now, you mentioned a second ago uh, that the two Michaels are, are, are not the reason for this, and the Prime Minister reiterated that yesterday when his comments in Quebec City uh, about that. But how can you separate the two of them, Sarah? I mean, it's out there, and it's 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 actually one of the, the areas of concern. And we saw this with the, the trial of the two Michaels over the uh, Friday and this, this past Monday as well. Uh, the amount of support that was out there, we, the, nobody was allowed in the courtroom, sadly, but a number of diplomatic representatives from many of these countries were there uh, to show their support for this. To, to, so it's not the stated reason why, but you've got to figure that it's it's also on the minds of, of those that signed on to this. For sure. you know, And you have to look at also who's sanctioned, right? So that's how it separates uh, on paper anyway. You know, the, the four officials who are sanctioned uh, are specifically officials that have responsibility for Xinjiang in some capacity or former officials. Uh, who had responsibility for Xinjiang. So that's really, that does have nothing to do with the two Michaels. Where we get into sort of overlap is, of course, I don't think China will see it that way necessarily. And we may uh, see some retaliation. The EU saw retaliation when uh, China went out and sanctioned 10 uh, government officials, uh, scholars included, which was, um, you know, interesting to see. And I think we can expect that same sort of retaliation, whether it's in the form of sanctions against uh, Canadian officials or perhaps uh, this will impact the sentences of the two Michaels. But then you get into a, you know, you did that, so I'm going to do this situation. And, and I guess the question is, how far that down that road you can can you go? I mean, certainly what they've done here uh, with this uh, this uh, movement here with the U.K. And, and Canada and the United States and, and the European Union, uh, they can expand this. I mean, you, know, you mentioned the four individuals that they've cited here. I mean, they could they could make that, you know, 24 if they wanted to, I suppose. Uh, but, you know, at, at some point you say, okay, enough is enough, or do you just let this – uh, fester for a little while and let, let, let the, the, the people in that country and those individuals that are cited uh, react to this? I think you, you let it fester in the sense that you, you know, you impose sanctions according to how the legislation is intended. You know, human rights abusers, what China's imposed sanctions on scholars. So, and, you know, in contrast, we've imposed sanctions on uh, officials that have direct responsibility or had direct responsibility at the relevant time for uh, the affairs of Xinjiang. So I think you just don't let it get to you and you just keep on using these important human rights tools to sanction human rights abusers. Is there a concern when you do something like this, though, about the, the, the pushback and the ramifications to this? I mean, you know, China is, well, in some people's minds, already the number one economy in the world. If not, they're very close to it. They're a very powerful influence, of course, on, in the world economic picture. Uh, and in the Canadian situation, of course, as we all know, Sarah, they've invested lots of money, uh, not necessarily through government, but sometimes through some of their uh, advocates, shall we say, like Huawei and, and others, uh, into Canadian universities, into research and development here. Uh, is there a concern that, that that may be an area that they may just pull it back from? 
Yeah, maybe, maybe the retaliation can take a number of forms. But I, you know, I do think at the end of the day, you know, if we want to have a principled foreign policy, we just can't let that matter when we see human rights abuses to this level and genocide occurring. We we actually have an obligation to use the tools that we have. It's the responsibility to protect. So I think that's more important. When we've seen this sort of thing happen in other parts of the world, there's the, the, the horrific treatment of the Kurds, of course, uh, years ago. Uh, one of the the areas uh, that, that they seem to insist on when they finally got to talking about this and possibly, uh, you know, trying to do something about this for, for, with that government level, in this case it will be the Chinese government, uh, having observers in this. I mean, an awful lot of the uh, uh, evidence that we have about what's going on here has been anecdotal from people that were there, uh, satellite photos and things of this nature. Is it important if there's going to be a discussion with the Chinese government about about this and, and any promises or commitments that they might make to try to address this, uh, that, that, that those that are involved in, in creating these sanctions and imposing these sanctions uh, should have eyes on this to make sure that it's being done properly? Yes, absolutely. You know, but I have to say the evidence is actually, it's comprehensive. It's, you know. Oh, yeah. You know, it's not, they're... There were huge multi days of hearings that the Subcommittee on International Human Rights in Canada heard to decide that this is, a, in fact, a genocide. Hundreds of pages of analysis coming out of firms in the UK and other places. So I think in this case, <laughs> we're pretty sure as to what's happening. But certainly in general, yes, we need the evidence to back up sanctions when we use them. What's your, be- your best guess on this, uh, about how effective this is going to be? And uh, nobody's anticipating, I think, you're going to bring China to their knees, but you at least want to bring them to the table and have a discussion about this. Right. I think this, I, I think, I hope this will be effective. You know, targeted sanctions are something that seem to be working generally on the world stage. And, um, you know, as I said, CCP officials have bank accounts in Canada, so I think they're really going to feel this. When assets are frozen, I mean, and these are business people. We should mention, you know, I'm sure that obviously have ties in government. Everybody with, with authority has some sort of a tie to the government there, whether it's uh, some of the major, major, major manufacturers or whatever. Uh, but money talks, and 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 that's that's you know the old adage. And I know it's it's almost a cliche, but it's a cliche because people use it all the time. Uh, hit them in the pocketbook, and that seems to get everybody's attention. Right. No, it's it's absolutely true. So uh, that's the stated goal as far as this goes. How long does something like this take uh, uh, to, to to become effective before? I mean, I mean, we've already got a verbal reaction from the Chinese government saying, you know, especially from Canada, saying, oh, you should be talking about human rights. And they said the same thing about the United States, too, with the Black Lives Matter. And they talked about our indigenous peoples here. And, 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 but they're fighting back verbally here. They're not trying to do anything else other than that. Uh, but how impactful can this be and how soon can they be Im- impactful? Uh, I think that that depends on a number of factors, you know, on uh, the level of coordination here we have. We have a lot of that on, you know, do we do we do more? How soon do we do more in terms of listing more individuals? Um, is this do we take more coordinated action even beyond uh, Magnitsky sanctions? Um, like it depends on so many factors. It's really hard to say how long it will take. It may take a while. Well, it's only been a couple of days, and, and obviously right. uh, the, the fact that they've responded in the fashion that they have obviously indicates that they understand the severity of this and the implications and the ramifications that could happen. So uh, I'd hate to say time will tell, but we're going to have to let this, uh, as you say, fester for just a little while to see how effective it's going to be. Sarah, thank you so much for the time. It was a pleasure talking with you today. Thanks. You too.
Take care. Sarah Teach, of course, uh, international human rights lawyer and a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute, talking about the newly imposed sanctions by not just the Canadian government, of course, but uh, by their partners in this endeavor, the United States, the UK, and uh, the European Union. Uh, strength in numbers and a lot of muscle behind that, and we'll see how the Chinese government responds. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.